So just in terms of a general introduction to uh, the ancient Near East, uh, first the geographical map, the, what we call in ancient studies the Near East is what is nowadays in general called the Middle East. I have no idea where the Near East has moved from there, but um, <laughs> so we um, are talking about Iraq, the land of the two rivers, parts of Syria, parts of western Iran, um, and then up in, in Turkey and Anatolia, um, this whole area is um, in the three millennia before Christ BC um, is the area for a sort of a major cultural unit as such, although many different languages were spoken in there. Line drawing map that gives you some rough idea about the um, main archaeological centers where excavations have brought up um, artifacts and texts in that area. Um, down here, this big cluster is the area where for, first in the third millennium the Sumerians were dwelling, then it was taken over by a Semitic population, became what is now be, uh, known as Babylonia. To its north, up here you have Assyria, also uh, from the um, Semitic um, po population. Um, and up there again, you get into the Hittite areas around Hattusas and so on. From a chronological point, I don't want to bore you too long, but just again a very brief overview. First, up here, what you have up to here about is um, prehistoric periods, which will not interest us at this point. History in general is supposed to start where texts set in and where we can follow the language and the record of the people through textual evidence. That happens around 3000 BC here, first by the Sumerians in the early dynastic periods, first um, Semitic dynasty coming in in the old Akkadian period near, near the end of the third millennium, then a short Sumerian revival and the three major big periods of Mesopotamian culture and it's spreading out over the rest of the ancient Near East. The old Babylonian period, the middle Babylonian and middle Assyrian period, and the Neo-Assyrian and Neo-Babylonian period. Early second millennium, middle second millennium, and basically first millennium, first half of the first millennium. Most of our tangible historical evidence is called from cuneiform texts, texts written with a stylus in to clay tablets in a three-dimensional script. What, um, what you have here are wonderful examples. You will see a little later that most of our texts are not that well preserved and that we also have to struggle with the problems of broken and fragmentary texts as such. Um, here to your left, that is a scholarly treatise about one of the main temples of Babylon from the first millennium. What you have in the middle is an early Sumerian account text um, from Nippur from the third millennium. And over here, as an example, you have an old Babylonian, that means early second millennium letter, private letter from a private sender to a private addressee, which um, uh, the left one is in Akkadian, this one is in Akkadian, this is Sumerian. Uh, the three texts you already can show you that those people love to write and they actually wrote a lot of different kinds of texts. That means we have a very varied and broad record of textual evidence which spans from washing bills or little account texts like this one to the famous Epic of Gilgamesh, which some of you may have heard about, spans from scholarly treatises, including mathematical texts and stuff like that, uh, to prayers and incantations, uh, to grammatical handbooks, encyclopedias, basically, and also to private letters to your grandma. So we have the whole social and um, societal level represented 
because, for instance, in difference to, to Egyptian culture, those guys happen to write on papyrus for their daily needs. Most of that is gone. Only their monumental inscriptions have survived, so we get only one sector of society. Not only, but mainly one sector. While here, everybody writing on the cheap material of clay, there is no um, difference between rich and poor as long as anything was written down. As hopefully most of you know, Chicago has one of the main centers of study of that period right on the campus of the University of Chicago in Hyde Park, the Oriental Institute, um, which has conducted its own excavations over many decades, it has a wonderful museum which is mainly stuffed with artifacts dug up by the Oriental Institute in scholarly excavations themselves. Um, it's worth visits, it's worth even thinking about becoming a member, and um, if you ever want to know a little more, go to httpoi.uchicago.edu and you'll get all the details. Sorry for putting a little plug for my home institution. <laughs> but right now, um, let's continue before I get to the main topic of today's talk, the epidemics. I thought, as I already said, I, I might best uh, give you a brief overlook over what we know in general about diseases and medicine in ancient Mesopotamia. Um, first of all, I think I should tell you a few things more about the source material the historians of the ancient Near East have to work from. As you can imagine, the task of defining medicine in a culture which has been dead for several thousand years is not so easy, and researchers need to draw on quite heterogeneous material that sometimes lies outside their immediate ex um, expertise. Let me, as a textual philologist, thus also start with the material I'm least familiar with, namely the archaeological remains as opposed to the textual record. This archaeological record, as far as medicine goes, remains altogether very scanned, as you will see. First, I want to mention paleopathological studies of skeletal remains, which have only recently been introduced into Near Eastern archaeology and thus at least for me as a non-specialist, have not yet yielded more than very limited results for our question. I'm sure this is a field that will expand and uh, where we will see more interesting results coming up in the future. Architectural remains of medical facilities have not been definitely identified today. In all the excavations, we don't have a hospital or a doctor's um, um, uh, working space or anything like that. The interpretation of some metal instruments as medical tools purportedly excavated at the Assyrian capital of Nineveh and dating to the middle of the first millennium BC remains very tentative. Um, if you look at this wonderful bone saw down here, I think there could be quite a number of other uses as well, other than medical. And the context of the find is not known, so we don't, again, know really whether those are medical tools or not. They have been quoted in the literature as such, but it's not certain. There are only very few depictions of sick people, um, like this person here, um, obviously sick, but then we don't know. It has, doesn't have an inscription. We don't know anything other than we have a picture of a sick person. And also very few depictions of medical equipment in the visible arts. And these are hardly detailed enough to yield tangible identifications of diseases, as in the guy before, or respectively the use of the depicted um, instruments. If it were not for the inscription, which tells us that this is the seal to be rolled over, over that clay, the seal of an, a physician which himself claims to, to be um, the servant of a lesser-known goddess who is connected to childbirth, we probably would, sorry, we probably would not have immediately thought of this long thing here as some kind of faucet or so, but it's quite likely that it is. <laughs> um, 
Finally, paleobotanical observation of ancient nutritional conditions has already led to reinterpretations of some illness-related evidence, and the study of modern medical condition, conditions in the Middle East has shown some interesting parallels to ancient sources, although the significance and relevance of such apparent parallels over millennia is often very hard to prove, and I tend to be on the very careful side as far as these um, results go. But by far the most important evidence for medical conditions, conceptions, and treatments is provided by cuneiform texts in Akkadian. Here are a few examples of medical tablets. Um, our main source for diagnostics, pharmacology, and therapy are fragments of scholarly texts and technical handbooks like these. These are from the library, the famous library of Ashurbanipal in Nineveh from the middle of the first millennium BC, one of the great kings of Assyria. Luckily, often such fragments can be rejoined to restore more complete tablets, but even then, you see, we still have to deal with sizable lacuna and in our textual reconstructions. Occasionally, duplication between texts can help us to fill in these gaps, but not always. I also want to show you briefly an example of a much older medical text in Sumerian language. You see the difference in script and format as well. This one dates to the late third millennium. Other than these uh, strictly medical uh, texts, prayers and literary texts sometimes shed important light on concepts about illness and its etiology, while texts from the magic or religious sphere give us important information about prophylactic measures and the healing of demon-induced illness. Just for the fun of it, let me show you one of our most famous demons, Pazuzu, actually this wonderful statuette, quite a rare thing. You can see in its original in the Oriental Institute. It's one of our little treasures. Uh, some of you may remember Pazuzu from his role in, in The Exorcist, uh, but that was a little more fantasy than sheer uh, scholarship. The practical side of healing and healthcare is sometimes reflected in letters, both private and official. A, a few further details on healers and their responsibles can also be gleaned occasionally from law collection, like the famous Code of Hammurabi. Now, we cannot blame it, the Royal Institute, to have the original of that. For that, you have to travel to the Louvre in Paris. But we do have a nice plaster copy, so you can even think you're looking at the right thing for, for that if you come to us. Um, finally, administrative documents can occasionally yield glimpses of the social or economic status as well as of the working conditions of the healers and physicians. Let's now go back to the corpus of technical, scholarly, and professional texts dealing with medicine. This corpus that we astrologists simply call the medical texts. Uh, these texts mo date mostly to the Neo-Assyrian and Neo-Babylonian periods in the first millennium BC, with only a few examples known from the earlier Ur 3 period, that's the Sumerian one I showed you before, and also from the Old Babylonian and the Middle Babylonian periods. Some of these earlier exa exemplars can, however, be recognized as forerunners to the later compendia, and later copies of some of the texts date as late as the first century AD and thus belong to the very latest texts ever written in cuneiform Akkadian. This shows an unbroken tradition of medical knowledge and practice over several thousand years in the ancient Near East. On this map, you can see marked those ancient cities from which medical texts in some numbers have been recovered to date. It shows you how widely known and practiced this specific medical knowledge was in antiquity. You have cities like Babylon in the south, Hattusas, the Hittite capital up far in the north, or Nineveh and Ashur, the centers of Assyria um, and during the Assyrian Empire. While a great number of relevant texts from the first millennium BC have been published in hand copies of the cuneiform characters, that's usually how publication is done in our field, um, only relatively few translations and systematic studies are available, thus making much of the material not so easily accessible to the non-specialist. 
The most reliable studies, in my opinion, have been published in German and French, and in France, there is now even a specialized journal for ancient Mesopotamian medicine. I've been there for about three years and is flourishing. Unfortunately, some recent books in English are of more doubtful quality, and I thus have refrained from putting them on your reading list. Eventually, I hope we'll also get some good and usable literature in English here. The least sophisticated of the medical texts are simply lists of words arranging names of diseases, parts of the body, plants, and minerals used as materia medica, and some medical vocabulary in the format of a Sumerian to Akkadian dictionary. The second and almost altogether most important genre of texts related to healing are what we call the therapeutic prescriptions. They are written either on small tablets, presumably excerpted from major compendia for individual cases, or on bigger library copies of such handbooks as we have seen one before the, the reconstructed tablet. Um, they typically contain a description of symptoms, which is often followed by a short diagnosis, a list of ingredients with instructions for their preparation and application, and sometimes a laconic prognosis, he will get well. Here is an example of such a prescription. First, the um, description of the symptoms. If a man's tongue is swollen though it, that it fills his mouth, then you dry tamarisk leaves, leaves of the adaru plant, and leaves of two other plants named fox grape and dog's tongue in Acadian. You chop and sift them, then knead them with mustard juice. Then, third, uh, you rub the top of his tongue with ghee, put the medication on his tongue, and he will get well. In these texts, elements of herbal or mineral medicine are often intertwined with more magically oriental, oriented practices, like the use of amulets, stones, phylacteries, and apotropaic incantations. I shall come back to that question a little later. The third major component of the medical corpus are the so-called diagnostic omens. These texts were probably not used in the healing process proper, but still yield important information on the Babylonian system of identification and classification of diseases. Technically speaking, there are omen collections in which the protesis, that is, the if clause that contains the condition under which a certain prediction will come true, this if clause um, <coughs> Uh, is formed by a concise description of medical symptoms, while the apodosis, that is the prediction itself, contains the name or cause of a disease and the prognosis, which can range from immediate death through prolonged, prolonged illness to a speedy recovery, without mentioning any appropriate therapeutical measures. I also give you an example of this genre. The first three lines up there you will be surprised how long the translation of these lines will be, but anyway. First line, if he is sick for just one day and his head aches, heat from sunstroke, hand of the personal god of his father, he will die. Second line, if he is sick for just one day, keeping, keeps putting his hands on his belly, moans and then stretch it out, stretches out his hands, he will die. Third line, if the same, and he keeps putting his hands on his belly and then sucks his fingers, hand of the great gods, he will die. Too bad, I could have given you an example where he will survive, but in this text he doesn't. <laughs> Let's now have a look at the diseases themselves as described in our texts. Knowledge of the human anatomy, and specifically the internal organs, was rather limited in Mesopotamia. Human dissection was not practiced, and details of the insides of the human body could only be observed accidentally from gushing wounds, etc., or inferred by analog analogy to animals slaughtered for food, offerings, or divination. Here you have, for instance, the Babylonian model. It's a clay model, inscribed clay model of a sheep's liver, which was then used for extracting omens. You see all the inscriptions, they, they 
say, which sign on the, the liver of the slaughtered animal could have an anomaly which then would mean what is indicated on that model. So for sheep's intestines, livers, and so on, they were pretty uh, sophisticated in the way they, they looked at these anatomically, but to project that into human anatomy is a different thing. So the development of an organ-specific pathology was, was thus practically excluded. Diagnosis and treatment had to rely exclusively on individual symptoms and their observable co-occurrences. On such a basis, aggravated by translational problems inherent in the study of texts in an extinct language, it is often impossible for modern scholars to identify ancient names of diseases with modern terminology. The chances for a correct identification are best where the affliction is very specific or local, as for instance in the case of menstrual problems, eye trouble, or toothaches. But even there, ancient medical terminology can be elusive and misleading for us. As an example, it may be noted that the common words for blind and deaf are never used in texts dealing with eye or ear diseases, which on the other hand abound with rare terms for blurriness, humming, etc. And if you ever have had the experience, as I certainly have, trying to um, explain to a doctor in not your native language the little details about your symptoms, and you do not know all those little differences in the humming and blurring and whatever, you know how difficult this will be for a philologist to extract the correct meanings from texts which just give you this type of vocabulary. The Mesopotamian medical compendia are generally arranged in the order, uh, in Latin, a capite ad calcem, that means starting with afflictions of the head and its parts, and then continuing downwards to the feet. Respiratory ailments are treated as related to the throat or chest. Most disease of the inner organs were subsumed under the general term libu, which can mean either heart or generally inside of the body. When other organs are mentioned, it remains unclear whether the texts speak of the actual organs or just use the organ names to identify certain regions of the body, like liver area or whatever. Special consideration was given to gastrointestinal problems, diarrhea, flatulence, and anus pains. Urinary and venereal diseases are also treated in the therapeutical texts. Of afflictions less easily ascribed to a particular part of the body, there are prescriptions against skin diseases and boils, paralysis, and bleeding, to name but a few. Using different methodological approaches, many efforts have been made to find in the text symptoms and pathographies of diseases likely to have been known and treated in ancient Mesopotamia. These include, for instance, xerophthalmia, ergotism, tuberculosis, malaria, lupus, jaundice, bilharzia, typhoid fever, and so on and so on. Several condi conditions which in our perception are not strictly diseases are also dealt with in the Mesopotamian medical texts. These include, for instance, rituals and prescriptions to ease menstrual problems and childbirth, enhance sexual desire and potency, ancient Viagra is there, and quiet crying babies. This latter case is of particular interest since pediatrics, um, especially for newborns and young, very young children, cannot rely on the patient's subjective perception of pain or illness, and thus has to act upon symptoms visible or, as in this case, audible to, to bystanders. It should maybe also be mentioned in this context that an objective standards of fever as consistently and measurably increased body temperature, usually a major diagnostic indicator not only in pediatrics, quite certainly did not exist in Babylonia. Babylonian texts mentioning such so-called fevers thus may often be trying to describe other more subjective perceived kinds of heat caused by varying factors like emotions, fear, local inflammation, sunburn, or even the consumption of alcohol. I will leave aside for today completely what we know about injuries and trauma healing, since this branch of medicine has relatively little to do with the topic of this summer institute. Just let me say here that it might not even have been seen as part of medicine in Babylonia, but rather as a specialized form of practical craftsmanship. Whether the same was true for surgery remains even more unclear. It is never mentioned in the therapeutical texts, but other texts tell us that it was performed by the same professional specialists 
whom we will see as the traditional doctor in a few minutes, called in Akkadian the Asu. It's indisputable that in ancient Mesopotamia, many states of illness were sent, seen as sent by the gods in retaliation for human sin and misbehavior. Um, again, or were caused by the actions of demons or ghosts who had at least tacit permission from the gods to pursue their nefarious goals. We have, again, Mr. Pazuzu twice up here and here, watching from behind what his co-demon Lamashtu is up to here, a lion-headed, um, very unpleasant lady, mainly after women in labor and very young newborns. Generally speaking, diseases of such a kind have to be alleviated and removed either by reconciling the gods, if the gods are responsible with the patient, or by expelling the demonic force or witchcraft from the body of the patient. This typically involves either religious prayers or incantations usually classified as magical. This is unfortunately not the time for me to uh, discuss the often quite voodoo-like rituals of such healing procedures, uh, but I at, least, at least wanted to show you the modern drawing of a little doll, exactly to ancient specifications from a cuneiform text, which was to be magically married to the demon that possessed a man, and then being expelled and destroyed after the, the wedding, took her demonic husband along and away. So that was one way of getting rid of things. In many cases, a prophylactic strategy might be even more appropriate with apotropaic rituals and phylacteries directed against the illness-inducing force before it even could strike. Prescriptions using potions or cells of herbal and mineral ingredients seem, on the other hand, much less appropriate to eliminate existing divine wrath or the threat of, de threat of demonic aggression. For many of the ailments treated in the therapeutical texts with such methods, it therefore seems more plausible to accept the simpler concept, namely that of natural, dis uh, natural cause. Um, this does not mean that these prescriptions never use magical components like accompanying rituals and incantations. The magical aspects involved in the treatments are, however, in these cases normally not apotropaic, but rather serve to enhance the medical healing qualities believed to be inherent in, inherent in the ingredients. To, uh, to accept the natural instead of supernatural origin for some ailments may occasionally open the door to an observation of what we could, would consider the true cause of the illness in the sense of Western science. But such discoveries were clearly not brought into a system by the ancient healers. A good example is the observation of contagiousness, a phenomenon that demonstrably was known to some Babylonian physicians which they, however, never investigated on a larger scale. We will come back to that topic in a little time. Let's, I know I'm running late here, but let's see what I can do. Um, first, uh, uh, briefly talk about the healing approaches. There are two major healing deities in the Mesopotamian pantheon, which also are regularly mentioned in medical incantations, Gula and her son Damu. This is, two pictures of the goddess Gula. I still don't know what she is holding in her hand, but this is some kind of a medical instrument or not. Um, she was the main goddess of Isin, where excavations have unearthed her sanctuary. It probably also contained a chapel for Damu. Another temple of hers was found in Nippur by archaeologists from the Oriental Institute. You could even recognize a few of my colleagues down here if, if we had a, uh, could zoom in here. Um, circumstantial archaeological evidence suggests the third one in Durkurigalzu and many more places of worship for her are known from textual evidence. Uh, this is Isin, her main place. This is Nippur, where we just saw the slide. This is Durkurigalzu, um, another ancient city. The magical aspects of healing were mainly represented by Asaluchi from Kuara, who was associated with the god Ea from Eridu, down here in the south, and later considered identical with Ea's son Marduk, the main god of the Babylonian pantheon. The binary conceptual system described a few minutes ago thus cor corresponds well with this dichotomy in the pantheon. 
In addition to that, there are also two complementary professions sharing the task of healing, called the Asu and the Ashipu. We may or may not be seeing some of these guys. This is the same amulet again. You see that scene here. And there are two persons clad in fish gowns around the bed of the patient. There's a good chance that these are actually the um, professionals called Ashipu. It seemed only natural to assume that one of these, namely the Ashipu, was the magical expert, while the other one, the Asu, was the real physician. This rather simplistic view has been much discussed by Assyrologists and has undergone several revisions and refinements. The most serious challenges to it were brought forward by my colleague Hector Avalos, who placed more emphasis on the healers' respective roles in the healthcare system than on their conceptual differences. The fact is, that although the Asu is generally more prone to herbal cues, he also used magical techniques. And that the Ashipu, which, uh, while usually working with apotropaic and exorcistic techniques, is also familiar with salves, bandages, and the like. In addition, both professionals are often seen working hand-in-hand -hand on individual cases and probably could take over each other's tasks in the case of unavailability or scheduling conflicts. It even can be shown that both professional titles were born alternatingly by one and the same person. It thus can be safely said that in general the Asu and the Ashipu were not working against each other, but rather as two complementary specialists for one common goal, the health of the patient. Our knowledge of the administrative mechanics of healthcare in Mesopotamia remains minimal. It seems plausible that the main centers for the healing arts were the temples of Gula and Damu, probably providing personnel and library resources, but there is no indication that they contained anything like hospital facilities. They were probably visited by the ill and also by the healed for religious purposes, um, as many ex voto artifacts excavated around the Gula temples in Isin and Nippur suggest. We have these little figurines where people put their hands at, obviously, the aching parts of the body. We also have um, severe legs and, and arms, just those things as ex votos like in Middle Ages in, in, in European churches also you get those things. Practically speaking, medical care was, however, more likely administered at the home of the patient. Maybe this is at home, at least the amulet was meant to be hung up on the wall of the bedroom of the private home. It remains unclear whether the physicians worked on a freelance schedule for individual payment or whether a certain level of health care was provided as a public service by temple and state. The fact that the Ashipu was sometimes considered part of the temple personnel might speak in favor of the latter, but no similar arrangements are known for the Asu. Medical specialists were also working in the palace. One group of Middle Babylonian letters even seems to show a group of government-related doctors working in a hospital-like setting, but we only have the texts and not the archaeological evidence for that. Unfortunately, it's not known whether the public benefited from the expertise of these health professionals in civil service in any way. Finally, let me now come to the final major part of my presentation, and thus directly to the theme of the Summer Institute, Contagion and Epidemics. As already mentioned above, to notice the contagiousness of a disease is often almost inevitable. But it is very difficult for any medical system lacking a rational explanation of the phenomenon to cope with the ensuing situation, in the worst scenario, an epidemic. Surprisingly, in the long history of research on ancient Mesopotamian medicine, contagion has only been investigated very rarely, uh, most recently actually by yours truly in a, the context of a conference on rationality in ancient Near Eastern and Greek medicine. Although what follows will involve quite a bit of potentially boring textual and philological argumentation, let me try to give you the gist and at least some of the conclusions of my investigation about epidemics. It had been noted before that some letters from the royal correspondence from Mari, an old Babylonian kingdom located northwest of Babylonia on the Euphrates, right up here, in the corner. It's, it's today in Syria, so it's just beyond the border between Iraq and Syria. 
that some of these letters were dealing with the effects of one or several outbreaks of an epidemic disease in the 18th century BC. Although we still have no idea what specific illness struck the, the area at that time. The mentioned letters are still our only evidence for the event and at the same time the primary source of information on epidemics in general. What makes this little corpus especially precious is that it contains letters of different origin and purpose, while some of them are addressed to the king by his political advisors and are mainly concerned about the political and social implications of the epidemic outbreak. Others are reports on individual patients and victims in the king's household and harem. These contain much more medically interesting details and tell us more about prevention and conceptualization of the contagious disease. The term used in the political letters for an epidemic outbreak is uculti ilim, or in English, devouring by the god. The enraged god is said to touch or strike the land, or his hand is simply placed upon the land or an individual. A person or area so affected is called touched. In one letter, the king is warned against entering such a touched area and asked to give orders that touched people should not enter untouched towns, while the writer of the letter says that he himself passed by the affected region as quickly as he could. The writer mentions the danger that inhabitants of afflicted towns could try to take refuge in other settlements and thus spread the disease. This is the text highlighted on the tablet and over here. The god is striking in the upper district, it says, so I without delay took a bypass. Furthermore, my lord should give orders that inhabitants of the towns, as soon as they have been touched, must not enter into untouched towns. Otherwise, it could well happen that they strike the whole country. Also, if my lord marches towards the upper district, my lord should remain in the city of Telka. He should not go on to the city of Sagaratum. The country is stricken. In other cases, it seems more likely that still healthy people simply abandoned their touch towns and fled to <coughs> less populated areas to avoid the illness. From letters dealing with the end of an epidemic, we know that in the case of such a flight, the sick and dead were left behind. As soon as there appeared to be no more cases of the illness, it is said that the god or his hand had calmed down or that the god himself had again become favorably disposed. This fact then had to be confirmed by an oracle from the gods through extispice. Only after such a positive answer to the query could the population return to bury the dead and the cultic cleansing of the town finalized the recovery. Let us now turn to the letters concerned with afflicted individuals. Their illness is usually called simum. In one text we see a group of seemingly very ill soldiers with a simum to be brought to the town of Ekalatum and finally to the district of cap capital of Shubat Enlil. By orders of King Shamshi Adad to his son Yasmach Adad, they were first to be quarantined in Ekalatum in a temple and their armor was supposed to be burned, most probably as a prophylaxis against spreading their disease. The rather fragmentary text suggests that the king eventually put economic reason above ma magic or medical concerns and at the end of the letter actually rescinded the order to burn their personal belongings. But for our purpose, that does not make much difference. In any case, the burning as such should not be understood as a disinfectant measure in the modern sense, but rather must be seen in the context of some other texts to be discussed promptly, which suggest that objects that had been in close contact with an ill person could potentially transmit divine affliction to these persons. The remaining four texts of the group are the most enlightening. They deal with individual women, just for the fun of it, that they might have looked like those two girls here from a set of figurines. This is not in the Orinal Institute, but we have very similar wonderful figurines of the same period there as well from our own excavations. Three women had fallen ill with a simum and were therefore, depending on their status, either put under quarantine within or physically removed from the palace. Again, it would surely be anachronistic to interpret these measures as efforts to stop the direct transmission of pathogenic agents, although one must admit that the strictness of the orders and some accompanying remarks are strikingly modern in their approach. The expectation in all cases seems to have been that the patients were likely to die anyway, 
but that avoiding contact with them could prevent the divine wrath from leaping over to others in their living quarters. A relatively straightforward case is the following, where the writer states, Atusar, the female servant of a woman named Khushutum, was full of the punishment of the god, and thus I got that woman out of the palace. The priest should now come and purify the palace. Note that the disease is not called simum here, but rather punishment of the god, thus expressly giving a religious explanation for the outbreak of her illness. Even so, Atusar's individual condition, though presumably caused by some transgression of her own, was deemed dangerous enough to others for her to be immediately removed from the palace and the ritual cleansing of the palace was ordered. In the next letter, Queen Shiptum writes to her husband, King Zimrilim, about the illness of a servant. And the passage down here says, This woman is called Ashtaka. Right now I have made her dwell in the new quarters. Table and meal have been separated. Nobody will go near her bed or chair. Even more explicit is the fear of contagion in the third text, the letter of Zimrilim to Shiptum, the other way around, about a woman who is clearly of higher status. This one needs to be quoted here in full. The king says, To Shiptu say, thus says your lord, that's the normal introduction of a letter. I hear that Nana is ill with Simum but that she is still very much staying with the palace people and actually interacting with all the other women. Now put your foot down and make sure that nobody drinks from the cup she drinks from, that nobody sits on the chair she sits on, and that nobody sleeps on the bed she sleeps on. She is not allowed to interact with all the other women. This simum disease is, and now the Akkadian term is mushtachizu, the last word in the text here. Unfortunately, we would like to know what that means, but the, this crucial final word is only attested this once in all the thousands of Akkadian texts we have, and thus very difficult to understand. Literally, it means one who causes another person to seize or marry someone still else. And it is used here quite certainly to convey the letter writer's idea of contagiousness. This disease is mushtachizo. Remember the little doll here I showed you before, the bride for the demon? I think it is no con uh, coincidence that contagiousness in the letter I just showed you leads us back into the terminology of marriage here, one who causes another person to marry still somebody else. And that the contagious disease is thus described as a matchmaker. But to back up this point, I would have to uh, go into a much longer and very specialized linguistic discussion, which I'm more than willing to spare you here. <laughs> Let us instead turn to the last of our four texts, possibly another letter from King Zimbrilim to his queen. Here we find the following passage concerning a sick woman called Sumudum. The letter says, because of the broken of this woman, many other women may fall ill with this simum. This woman should stay in one separate building and nobody should go in to see her. But perhaps there is no separate building available. As soon as the ecstasy on behalf of Sumudum is negative, one should do the following to this woman, and then the next three lines have unfortunately been erased, not broken, but erased by the ancient scribe, and we do not know what we should do to the woman. And then it continues, whether she dies or lives, in either case, other women might come down with that simum, may just this one woman die. The remainder of the text seems to change the topic and breaks off soon. These old Babylonian texts from Mari show that people were aware that contact with the afflicted could lead to the illness jumping over to the non-afflicted. In other words, they had a clear notion of contagiousness, although this was surely not based on the observation of pathogenic agents. Instead, it was rooted in the belief that some magical power inherent in the body, belongings and abode of a person who was under the wrath of a god, could negatively affect anybody entering into this person's intimate personal sphere. This is, in reverse, the same principle that underlies the techniques of contact magic or voodoo, based on manipulations using bodily fluids, hair, clipped fingernails, garments, and the like, to exert influence over another person. In the case of epidemics, through such contacts, 
One bad apple could rot the whole basket or a whole town. Avoiding touched areas was one way of reducing the risk. Placing sick individuals under quarantine was another. As a side effect of that, the care of afflicted individuals seems to have been reduced to a minimum or even stopped completely. Contact with personal belongings of the ill, such as their cup, chair, bed, or garments, was also to be avoided. The use of fire to destroy such items was mentioned at least once. Finally, in the case of an epidemic, the burying of the dead was only safe after the gods had given clear signs that they had calmed down and that the danger was over. This probably does not mean, however, that the corpse itself preserved the dead person's aura and thus remained contagious because it still carried the divine wrath, but rather should be understood in the context of quarantine again and complete avoidance of affected areas. On the other hand, the burial as such was crucially important to avoid the subsequent dangers of roaming ghosts and the host of afflictions they caused. It's interesting to see that in 1951, long before the texts from Mari, which I showed you, were even published, an historian of medicine, who was not himself an serologist, called Henry E. Segrist, had already expressed a very similar view of epidemics and contagiousness in ancient Mesopotamia. So he read, for instance, it was probably, uh, he wrote, it was probably easier for primitive and early civilizations to develop a clear concept of the contagiousness of disease than it was for later civilizations, for the good reason that among primitives and in early antiquity, we usually find an outspoken magic or religious concept of contagion. If soul substance was contained in every object that an individual touched, he could be hit by magic through any such object. On the other hand, if evil was in an, in an individual, it could be spread not only through direct contact, but also through the objects that he had touched. Not only the dead were dangerous, but their clothing and other possessions were too, and the same was true of the sick. About protective measures, Sigrist says, the first impulse is to flee from the infested locality. And then he gives examples from um, southern Sumatra and so on for that. Um, the next step noted by Sigrist, that of actively killing the sick, seems to have left no trace in our Maori text, and thus was probably not or no longer practiced there. Later on in his book, Sigrist talks specifically about the Mesopotamian concept of contagion, which he sees as a starting point for some Jewish ideas and biblical regulations. He states, the idea was that the sick who was possessed by evil spirits was taboo for the duration of his illness. He was unclean, and this impurity was contagious. He who touched him, slept on his bed, sat on his chair, ate out of his plate, or drank from his cup became impure also and open to the invasion of spirits. The concept of contagion was purely spiritual, not in any way medical, but it had hygienic consequences. You did not touch the sick unnecessarily for fear of being contaminated, and whoever had become impure had to undergo an atonement ritual. So far the quote from Segrist. Here, Sigrist seems to almost literally quote from one of our Mari texts, which he, however, could not yet possibly have known. What happened? His statement was actually based on a passage from a Neo-Assyrian compendium of incantations written down about 1,000 years later than the Mari texts, where we read in a long litany listing different scenarios for transgressions which could result in divine wrath. He personally met an accursed man, an accursed person met him, he slept in the bed of an accursed person, he sat in the chair of an accursed person, he ate at the table of an accursed person, he drank from the cup of an accursed person. This is where Sigrist got his list. The parallels to King Zimri Lim's quarantine orders are so clear that I do not even have to individually point them out to you. The Mari texts predating the later text by a millennium provide the final proof that the latter is actually talking about contagiousness, as Sigrist had already suggested and that the same magical religious concept of contamination and contagion reflected in this late incantation was already the driving force behind the prophylactic measures known to us now in more detail from the letters of the old Babylonian period. Many questions remain here. For instance, we have no indication whatsoever whether epidemics would in general have fallen into the responsibility of the Asu or of the Ashipu. The fact that no treatment for the patient is mentioned anywhere might even indicate that neither of those specialists got actively involved in such emergencies and that they were handled purely on an administrative level. But 
who but an Azu or an Ashipu would have been in a position to make the necessary diagnostic decision to stop treatment and abandon the patients. Like today, the dilemma between medical, societal and administrative concerns in case of an epidemic must have been solved somehow. But we don't know exactly how they did it, just as we often don't know how we should do it ourselves. And like then, in spite of all the progress in medical science and society, epidemics still remain intimidating and threatening to many of us more than 3,500 years after the Kingdom of Mari ceased to exist. Thank you for your attention and... I was trying to understand, maybe I'm not clear, because you do have the Ashutu and the Ashiputu, right? Yeah. And so is this the question that you're also trying to find how they were able to um, critically like examine and define whether the contagion was spiritual or medical because they did have a pretty good medical sort of compact way of figuring out what the person's illness was so therefore how were they able to decipher the difference between the two or how to treat or was it a combination of the two yeah if, if anything this is why i called the whole thing a, a magical medical system i actually in the few passages which i decided to skip i would have come back to that a little clearer. Um, the, there was no difference for the, the individual living at that time between the, the so-called magical and the so-called medical sphere. The, the specialists worked together if they were actually trained specialists in two different areas and so on. Um, the fact remains also that there, there was, no, with all the diagnostic knowledge they had and so on, that there was no concept of pathogenic um, um, uh, transmission of diseases or so. What you had was just that if that jumped invisibly from one to the other, this had to be something where the gods or the demons or whatever came in. And outside of this documentation for epidemics, where it became politically interesting, in the medical text, we had no other indications of what they thought about contagion and so on. This is why this corpus of letters and a few other indications in, in, in other cuneiform texts are so precious and unique for, for that whole 